Liberals are still really upset that Elon Musk is working to make Twitter a free speech platform for all because, as we well know, liberals love freedom of expression so long as it's their own and only their own. But shoot, would it be too much to ask Elon to buy Facebook and Instagram while he's at it? Because it sure would be wild to exist on those platforms without censorship, shadow banning, and the other cockamamie tricks the rest of big tech polls. The show starts now. The liberals are constantly, and I mean constantly, reminding us that it's we conservatives who need to be more open to and tolerant of things like socialism, communism, BLM justice, riots, drag shows, men and women sports, minor attracted pedophiles, and the LGBTQ plus plus XYZ lifestyle that has gotten so out of control, your average gay person is considered pretty vanilla in comparison. But if you ask them to so much as share one freaking social media platform with those who don't think like they do, well, they take their blue checks and threaten to leave the virtual playground. Now, will these pseudo and once relevant celebrities be missed? No, I don't think so. It's not as if their liberal drivel is so enticing and titillating we can't live without them. Though it is important to note that as of earlier today, they all still did indeed have Twitter accounts open, but it's the whole premise of their grievance that does it for me. Elon Musk is not a right winger. He's not a conservative. He didn't waltz into Twitter and vow to give conservatives the upper hand. Not at all. If he did, I could see why these liberals would be so triggered. I mean, I cannot imagine what it would be like to feel as though one political ideology is the only accepted ideology on a mega platform with 450 million active users. Oh, wait, I can but that's not even the new reality these liberals are being asked to endure on the platform. They are simply going to possibly be subjected to thoughts and ideas they don't like or agree with. The horror, the horror. That is how intolerant and indulgent these people are. They think they're so damn elite and important they shouldn't even be asked to exist on a virtual platform with those they disagree with. And they are perfectly fine with big tech colluding with big government and big pharma to shut people up so long as it's other people and not their people. My friends, liberalism is not just a disease, it's a special form of narcissism that infects the mind and body like a flesh-eating bacteria. Get well soon. Tweet, tweet. But speaking of silencing, still ahead, I'm joined by a California mom who's going up against her daughter's school for their unthinkable actions. More next. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I 
or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. So what's it like to be a parent in California? Well, if your young daughter has the audacity to draw a picture with the simple message, all lives matter, then you can expect her and your family to be relentlessly targeted and bullied by the school administration. Now, many moms would fold in the face of such blatant intimidation, but not my next guest. No, she decided to fight fire with legal action, and her fight will certainly pave the way for concerned parents from coast to coast. Joining me now with the story you got to hear to believe is a California mother, her daughter's school district, Chelsea Boyle, and her attorney, Alexander Haberbush. Thank you both so much for being with me. And, you know, I heard your story from our friend Kira Davis, and it really was incredible to hear. It's almost one of those things where you feel like, no, this couldn't have possibly happened. You hear about these things, but you never really meet the people that they happen to. Uh, I know that it's a difficult story. It's involving your young daughter. But, you know, as I said, your daughter just simply drew a photo or a picture your young daughter, with a, a very simple message, a message that we should all be able to get behind, which is all lives matter. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter where you come from, your religion, who you voted for. All lives matter. But it was that that triggered your daughter's teacher in the administration. Tell me what happened after she drew that photo. Well, I actually hadn't found out about it um, an entire 11 months later. And it was another parent in passing that had told me about it. And I was like, wait, what? what happened? Uh, my daughter did this. And so I asked her, you know, I said, did you ever get in trouble by the principal for drawing a picture? And then she laid it all out for me. I mean, she had it down to the specific date of uh, when this had happened. And she had said she drew this picture. And in her mind, in her first grade mind, it was her and her four friends. And they, uh, she was celebrating her friends of all cultures, really, because she didn't understand. She saw Black Lives Matter on her school computer every single solitary day for seven months. And she didn't understand why she mattered. She didn't understand why all of her other friends mattered. And it's a very multicultural school. And so she basically said it's her and her four friends holding hands. Um, and I just, my heart broke. She said, uh, that the principal lined her up with all the other kids around her. She said there were just so many kids around mom and he made her apologize in front of all these kids. And then after that took away her recess, benched her and then said, you can't draw any more pictures for your friends at school. And she's severely ADHD and art's her outlet. That's what quiets her down. That's what calms her mind. So that's kind of what happened. And then I made the complaint and the principal decided to run his own investigation and found himself completely innocent. Wow. Surprise, so, right? Yeah. yeah. I <laughs> when mean, you investigate yourself. Right. I mean, I think I, I want to go back to that story even. You know, let's keep in mind your, your daughter's a first grader when she drew this picture. A picture, by the way, that I think any parent would be proud of. I mean, uh, there are a lot of pictures that people can draw that, that might be malicious, that, that might have an undertone. That is certainly not one of them. In fact, that's something that should be posted on a wall somewhere to be admired. Everybody holding hands in solidarity, saying that all lives matter, we all matter. I can't think of a better message for a young person to put out there. So congratulations to you for being a parent that really solidifies that at home. But 
going back to what happened afterwards, making your young daughter stand in front of everybody and apologize, taking away her recess and other privileges, I mean, to punish somebody for this, that is so out of bounds. Then you go to the, you know, the administrator and you say, this is what happened. Then they start targeting you then, you know, what, what did they do to you after you blew the whistle? Well, at first, the principal first said it never happened, that no incident like this had ever happened. And then finally, I had given the district the name of the other family who had complained. And um, then when that family corroborated my daughter's story, they came back and said, oh, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And so I kept going and I went to the level two. And uh, and then as soon as I got to level two, they started attacking me. And I'm like, wait a minute, now I need an attorney. Like, this is not right. And I'd already started researching, like, what had happened to us? We were discriminated against. And I yeah. couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, and it was a long process to find the right attorney to help me. Um, it was, I actually had attorneys contracts posted up in my kitchen. I had attorneys from all over the country trying to contact me. And then finally I had hooked up with a gentleman named Ryan Heath with the gavel project. And I asked him simply like, why are you doing this? And he just said really quickly. And he meant it. He was like, because I believe in people and I'm like, that's right. And let's do this. And then he introduced me to Alexander with the Lex Rex Institute. And I felt uh, much the same way. And so then they've kind of been holding my hand ever since and telling me, no, 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 this is wrong. And for, you know, all these different reasons of why it's wrong. Yeah, I want to go into the lawsuit itself, because I think there are a lot of parents that know that their school has done something wrong. Their children have been targeted in some way. I mean, unfortunately, it's becoming more and more common. But what made this ca this case different that you both felt that this is ripe for legal action, something that's winnable? How did that all come about? Alexander, I'll, I'll put that one to you. Yeah, and before I talk about the case, I do just want to thank the Gavel Project for funding this case. That was, as Chelsea mentioned, Ryan Heath from the Gavel Project is the person who reached out to me to help out Chelsea. If it were not for the Gavel Project, there is absolutely no way that we could fund cases like this. The Gavel Project is a qualified 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit. You can visit their website, thegavelproject.com, and make a contribution there. But the reason that Ryan and I and then Chelsea also, of course, felt that this case was so important is because free speech is involved. And free speech is not just involved, but it's actually, A, been compelled from Chelsea's daughter. So there's two different standards on free speech. There's when the government tries to tell you that you can't say something. That's usually what we think of when free speech comes up. And then there's also when the government tries to make you say something. That's called compelled speech. That's a far more egregious thing to do. Almost never permissible for the government to do that. But that's what happened here when they compelled Chelsea's daughter to make an apology. And then secondly, because the facts surrounding their retaliation against Chelsea and her family have been so egregious, we felt this case needed to be heard and it needed the attention that it's getting. No parent should be the target of retaliation and discrimination made to feel like a pariah attacked by their closest friends, told that they are a liar uh, as part of the appeals process, uh, have totally irrelevant text messages dredged up. I mean, what's happened to Chelsea is really beyond the pale and it needs some sort of legal reckoning. So this is not just the school, Chelsea, this is other parents that have decided to come after you as well? 
And I know that yeah, this can't be a... easy to talk about, but you know, we, we certainly appreciate you well, talking about it because you're not the only the person. You're not the only person that's been in this situation. You're just one that is, is brave enough to talk about it. So tell me about some of the treatment that you've received ever since you made this public. The parents aren't doing it on their own. They're being pushed by the school to do it. I want to be clear about that. Wow. Um, I mean, I had felt some of the retaliation over the, the summer, but then as soon as school started, I mean, it was, it was quick. It was every single solitary day I was calling Alexander or sending him emails. Um, I mean, it was really the second day of school um, that I got an email. My daughter had written a letter to the principal because they'd been bullied by the kids at school, both of my kids. And I mean, all I can say about the letter was, it was like, please, please, my mommy does so much for the school. Why are you bullying us? Why, why are you doing this to us? Please just tell the truth to the principal. And, um, and we went into the second week and, uh, I had my daughter call me hiding in the, the stall of a bathroom. And she called me from her iWatch. And she was bawling her eyes out saying, please, please come and pick us up. Please come and pick my brother and I up. We're getting, please, please, the counselor's following us. I, I can't even get my brother to speak. He's crying. And I said, okay, I'm on my way. Um, they followed my daughter into the bathroom. What, 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 were the they trying, what was the motivation of them following your daughter around? Was it just intimidation? What were they saying to her? What was that experience like for her? The school knows that parents care about their kids and schools do not like it when parents speak up to defend their rights or the rights of their kids. So these schools will stop at nothing to prevent parents from doing that. That's that's unfortunately the state of the situation right now. And unless we have people like us, like the Gavel Project, fighting back against this sort of thing, it's going to continue. I, I hid my kids, Tommy. I felt the threat and... Um, and I had called Alexander and I said, I, I need to talk to you. I, I sent my kids away. Um, I hid them. And he goes, I, I don't understand. I'm like, I have this gut feeling. I've got this, this woman, this counselor talking about me um, at faculty meetings and saying that I uh, am mentally unstable to all the faculty. She's never made any kind of evaluation. To my knowledge, not even met Chelsea before. Chelsea is one of the most mentally stable people that I know. That's not, I mean, that, that notion is absurd. It's laughable. But the other teachers don't know better. So I want to go back to, were the, was the school district and the administrators, were they trying to deny that they did what they did to your daughter? Or were they just saying that what your daughter did was so egregious that she deserves to have had apologized and to be in that position? Well, if you look at the responses the school sent back, they're actually very carefully worded. Uh, Becerra, who's the principal that actually responded in the level one complaint, says, on the one hand, I don't remember any of the details of what you're talking about. By the way, I do happen to have this picture in my office. Not sure why he has it if there was never a disciplinary action. But he says, I don't remember. And then on the other hand, he says, it also didn't happen. How you can say something didn't happen when you don't remember it is entirely beyond me. But that's what he claims. I really think what's going on here is I think if Chelsea's family, if Chelsea's daughter had sat down and shut up 
as soon as her daughter was reprimanded, I don't think we would have heard another word about it. In fact, we know we wouldn't have because Chelsea didn't hear about this for over a year until another parent mentioned it in passing. It's because Chelsea stepped up and decided to defend her rights and frankly, your rights and the rights of all of your viewers that she's being treated in this manner. What's the status of the lawsuit now? I mean, what, what's the process like and what has it been like for, for both of you in pursuing this, the end goal, of course, suing the, the school district? What are you hoping to gain if it all goes your way? Originally, we wanted an apology. At this point, you know, maybe an apology in front of all of the school kids at recess. <laughs> Same thing they did to Chelsea's daughter. Frankly, probably a lot more than an apology at this point because it's not just the compelled speech issue anymore. Now there has been systematic discrimination and harassment of Chelsea and her family. So at this point, we are still in the investigation phase of this lawsuit. The school adds more to investigate every day with, with each abuse they, they commit against Chelsea and her family. It's going to be a long lawsuit at this point. I hope they're prepared for it. Chelsea, are your kids still in this school? Um, no, I had to. Alexander, we had to move them um, for their safety. Um, Alexander had me move them. And it's a Spanish immersion school, so it's very hard. I couldn't find another school outside of the district. There, were, there were none. And but So we're still in the same district, and I'm still having issues. Uh, my, my children are still having issues, um, as recent as yesterday. Yeah. And uh, the unions talk, the union members talk, the union spreads information. It's, it's in the same district. You know, her kids are safe, but they are not free from harassment or discrimination. So uh, what, what grade level is your daughter currently, Chelsea? She's, she's now in third grade and my son's in fourth grade. And both of them have faced a lot of harassment and bullying. So is it harassment by the other students or is it teachers? Is it counselors? What is the current state of the harassment and, and who's perpetuating it? Uh, the admin, the administration, we've had some from students, from kids. You can't do anything about that. Um, I do. And I've never been able to say this, Tommy. I've never been able to talk to the teachers that the teachers, um, I try to leave them out of it. The teachers have been amazing. Um, I can't talk to them anymore. Uh the teachers at Viejo Elementary are just amazing, but the teachers aren't happy. Yeah. You know, the, the teachers aren't happy. They're not happy that this is happening. Um, and they're not free to speak up like you are. No. Wow. Um, if what I've come to realize very, uh, very recently is everything that's going on around in the country. And you see all these viral videos of parents standing up at board meetings. Uh, I've been kind of reclusive. And I actually went to a board meeting last uh, two weeks ago, and I was a little bit shocked. I've um, every aspect of my life. I mean, every relationship in my life, almost everyone has been completely ruined. All these relationships and friendships I've fostered and built um, are destroyed. Um, and I can thank a couple people for that. Uh, the, uh, but I went to this board meeting and I had so many parents come up to me. And say, thank you so much. You made your story uh, so we can talk to you about it. So we can talk about it. Like every aspect of this story about my daughter. And I have these parents tell me, I had one parent come up to me and say, you know, uh, you know, I'm waking up. My sixth grader tried to commit suicide. This is all in the Capo district. This is at our district 
board meeting. Um, Another parent told me that their daughter in second grade is dyslexic and there's no services for her and they have to fight for these services. They're still not getting these services. And she just, the, the second grade girl just wants to die. And then I started seeing these parents get up and they're not exactly talking about their own children, but these are the parents that are getting up and speaking at these board meetings. And it, and it solidified for me that all the parents, all these viral videos that we're seeing everywhere, these parents all have a story about their children, but they're not telling all the details. Yep. They just want all the other parents in the country to look at what's happening, talk to their children. I was so involved. I was doing, you know, two, 300 plus hours a year in volunteering at the school. And I didn't know this was happening. Right. Wow. Well, I want to go back to, let's keep in mind here. You've got a third and fourth grader. The administrators are harassing and bullying third and fourth graders. You know, I'm just going to take a wild shot in the dark here and say maybe that the line of work that they shouldn't be in should not be education. Because if you're willing to do that to a child, their parents, I can't fathom that. But I will say this, you're exactly right. Because if your voice wasn't so needed and so powerful, they wouldn't try to silence you. So there is power in words. There is power in standing up. And we've seen it all across the country. You know, we've seen our own federal government trying to to label parents as domestic terrorists for what they've done and and what they've stood up for. So what you're doing is impactful. It matters. And your kids are going to look at you when they're a little bit older and they're going to say, my God, I had a mom that was willing to stand up and fight for something that she believed in. And everything that they've been put through is going to be worth it because you're going to raise two incredibly strong kids. I can tell you that much. But we want to keep up with your story. Please, please. Let us know what's going on in any way that we can help. And I just want to assure you of this, both of you in the Gavel Project, what you're doing is so needed and it's so important. And you're going to be a part of a wave of parents who are going to make their voices heard. And sometimes, especially in, in California, it just takes one. It takes one and then the floodgates open. So what you're doing is so important. We're thinking about you. Please keep us up to date on everything that's going on. And the best of luck to you in, in your noble fight. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. We appreciate you guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, coming up, he was a highly respected and highly published cardiologist from Dallas, but when he chose to speak out against COVID vaccines, he was stripped of his medical certifications. But if you think that'll shut him up, think again. Dr. Peter McCullough joins me next. My next guest has been called dangerous, a conspiracy theorist, a spreader of misinformation, and has had his medical certifications revoked all because he chose to speak out about COVID, the pandemic, vaccines, and against the narrative big tech, big government, and of course, big pharma instructed doctors to push. Joining me now is cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much, doctor, for being with us and for having the bravery to speak out. I know that it certainly can't be easy, but it is so needed and necessary. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to start with what happened to you. I mean, when this whole COVID thing was going down, the vaccines were first introduced. I mean, you kind of sounded the alarm and you said that there was no scientific rationale for those under 50 to receive the vaccine. And that's when they came after you. Tell me about how that all went down. You know, in the context, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist, been board certified now uh, in both specialties, multiple examinations, clinical care track record is, uh, is perfect with no defects. I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history uh, regarding heart and kidney disease. One of the most published people in COVID-19. I 
have now 60 peer-reviewed publications on COVID-19, a best-selling book called Courage to Face COVID-19. So I've been relied upon in the US Senate on two occasions, as well as multiple state senates. And when the vaccines rolled out, uh, when we looked at risk benefit, uh, what we knew there is that people under age 50 had less than a 1% risk of hospitalization and death. And that was with the more serious variants. Uh, and we knew we had treatment approaches. So the vaccines, even if they were going to be safe and effective, would only be appropriate in senior citizens. You know, you're saying it now, and I think people are starting to come around to that idea. But boy, even a year ago, if you said anything about the vaccine, you were a conspiracy theorist, you were dangerous, you were a monster. I mean, I have no medical qualifications, but even if I expressed some some skepticism over it, being a now 30-year-old saying, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I mean, I was labeled dangerous, that I was essentially wanting grandma to die. And I know that the same thing happened to you magnified times a hundred times. But do you think when you spoke out, they were trying to make an example out of you. You think that's what happened? You know, I think so. I was very visible. I'm a frequent contributor on multiple news stations. I'm one of the most visible doctors in the world. And, uh, uh, you know, there was an attempt, I think, to push a vaccine agenda inappropriately towards young people. You know, we virtually never see senior citizens on the newsreels now. It's been an incessant focus on young people and children now for over a year. The CDC recently has analyzed this and has indicated 86% of children have already had the virus. It's too late for a vaccine. When the vaccines were developed, they always excluded people who had recovered from COVID-19 because the next, next infection, if it occurs, is gonna be very mild, indistinguishable from a common cold. Multiple sources of data support that now. So there's, there was, there's never been any rationale for a young person to take a vaccine, certainly no rationale for anyone at any age to take one who's recovered from COVID-19. And there are multiple analyses, uh, three of them I can cite, Ra, Kramer, and Methudius, show that if someone's recovered and they take a vaccine, they have excess rates of side effects that can land them in the hospital or worse. I'm glad you brought up vaccine side effects because that is still something that we're not able to, to discuss. You know, I have Dr. McCary on my show quite often, and we talk about the, the no human studies that, that they've been able to put out, that they say that we've seen them and they all look good, but they haven't put out the data. And we know that other countries have. Germany has put out the data. But why do you think it is that we are still so censored and shamed for speaking about vaccine side effects, even when it's people coming forward with their own stories, their own conditions, their own side effects, we're still unable to talk about it. Why is that? I think because the data do not look good. Uh, the, this data on safety with the vaccines is very, very worrisome. Let me uh, give you some exact uh, data. And, and I think this is what those who are trying to censor me uh, uh, really bristle at the most. It's just the precision at which the data are. This is from the open VAERS data uh, overlay that's over the US CDC VAERS system. It's, this has never been challenged. Uh, as being uh, anything but accurate. Uh, the CDC now, as of October 21st, 14,920 deaths that have occurred after the vaccine. Over 3,000 of them occur within 96 hours. And this is a gross underreporting. We have never had a medical pro a product where there's been this large number of deaths occurring shortly afterwards. This is incredibly disturbing. Products should be pulled off the market after five deaths, 10 deaths, certainly no more than 50 deaths. 
Uh, and uh, this vaccine program continued to roll because the government's behind it. You know, the government had already pre-purchased these vaccines. You mentioned the recent bivalent vaccines. Uh, the government had pre-purchased these before the animal studies were done. And then sadly, the animal studies failed and the animals uh, got the Omicron infection just like they would if they didn't take the new bivalent vaccine. And there was a false rise in the surrogate uh, antibody measure. So this is a disaster right now for the government agencies. And I, I think, honestly, they don't know what to do. They're grasping at straws, trying to censor me and other doctors bringing the truth forward. Well, part of the problem is, is they won't acknowledge when these vaccine injuries or even vaccine deaths occur. They say that there's there's no connection. Oh, it was just a coincidence that that person died after receiving the vaccine. So that's part of the problem here. And it's not. But we're seeing also a lot of young people who are having heart conditions that never had heart conditions before. And every time we see a story about it, someone dropping dead from this, dropping dead from that, never had any conditions before that. They still won't say it's vaccine related. But how confident are you? that a lot of these stories we've been hearing, especially from young athletes dropping dead or having major heart injuries, how much of that do you think is vaccine related? Yeah, there are over a thousand papers now in the peer reviewed literature on vaccine injuries and deaths, over a thousand papers. And I can tell you there are papers by, by Gill, Verma, Choi, and now Pantone, a big study in circulation, all showing myocarditis is fatal. It's fatal. It's, uh, it's listed first on the death certificates. Uh, when they do autopsies, the cause of death is fatal myocarditis. So there's no question this is due to the vaccine. In fact, the, the uh, conclusions of the studies that is, are, is fatal vaccine-induced myocarditis. The FDA should have looked at these right away, uh, should have advised the manufacturers to pull these off the market. This is in the peer-reviewed published literature. So what I think was going on now, when we see a young person die, Unless the family comes out and says that it was uh, uh, not related to the vaccine, that they didn't take a vaccine specifically, that we should assume if there's no other explanation, no drug overdose, no suicide, no motor vehicle accident, no long history of chronic disease, we should assume it's fatal subclinical vaccine-induced myocarditis until proven otherwise. I want to go back to the motivation behind all of this as well. Not only the motivation to have people get vaccinated, but now to shut people up. Do you think there's going to be a big problem for big pharma as well as big government with more vaccine injuries? And they're really worried about class action lawsuits, given the fact that the government really forced people in a lot of places to be vaccinated, otherwise lose their employment. Do you think that we're headed for some major legal action here? And if so, do you think the government and big pharma will ever actually own up to what they've done? I think there's multiple areas of culpability. First would be the people responsible for mandates. The CDC says now, and it's true all the way through, that there's no distinguishment between someone who's fully vaccinated and someone who's never taken the vaccine from a public health perspective. So no mandate would ever stand any type of legal test. It simply is not viable from a public health perspective and asymptomatic people are not public health threats. So right there, the people who have actually made the decision on mandates are gonna be culpable. I think the uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and the government, the government, uh, the Department of Defense subcontractors that are actually physically making the vaccine, they've defrauded the American public. There are no inspections for, for quality, purity, or safety of the vaccine products as they roll through the manufacturing process. Uh, the US government agencies, CDC, NIH, and FDA, have defrauded the public, haven't analyzed the safety data, haven't updated the consent forms 
haven't been honest with America. And then I think lastly, it's going to be those who provided substantial encouragement. And that could actually even go as far as doctors, health systems, clinics, and others. What I'm so sad to hear is people that got the vaccine to keep their job, didn't want to get the vaccine, didn't feel that they needed the vaccine, were actually scared of getting the vaccine, but they got it so that they could put food on their table. That is what angers me and burns my ass more than anything else because I know people that were in that position. But I want to talk about something else that they really didn't want people to talk about, and Joe Rogan got a lot of heat for talking about it, and that's ivermectin. What was your take on this? Is that actually a therapeutic that worked? Why was there so much uproar about it? Unravel that for me, because I think that the public is still really confused on if that's effective, if it's not, if it's deadly. We've had so many mixed messages on it. I was the first to publish a treatment approach on COVID-19, still the most widely utilized and downloaded sets of papers in 2020. It's actually, I'm the first author. And the second paper I did include ivermectin. Now, it took a while for us to figure out the dose the dose schedule and duration. So uh, it's my view now that 0.6 milligrams per kilogram for five, 10, sometimes even 30 days uh, is now the clinical state of the art as an antiviral. Now we incorporate it with about four to six other drugs. And when there are senior citizens who are sick, whether they're vaccinated or unvaccinated as an approach. Now ivermectin could be replaced with hydroxychloroquine to based on the circumstances uh, of Paxlovid, molnupiravir. We can use other antivirals but ivermectin, I think, is the most dynamic. Very exciting papers by uh, Sabine Hazen, another one um, by uh, uh, the group in, uh, in Central Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, demonstrating that ivermectin can actually improve uh, the condition of hypoxemic patients. Uh, the reason why it's been vilified, in, in my view, is because it's so dynamic. We've never had confirmatory large clinical trials. It would take a trial of about 20 to 40,000 patients with the correct dose and duration of ivermectin. And we haven't seen that. We've seen small little clinical trials giving low dose for three days, very late in the syndrome. And even there, there's always a trend to demonstrate benefit, uh, but they're not large and conclusive. So with ivermectin, it's really based on clinical experience. Doctors have developed the clinical experience. We've developed and created and sustained the community standard of care. And the community standard of care should not be tampered with by big pharma, by the American Medical Association, state medical boards, or the CDC, NIH, or FDA. And Joe Rogan uh, received a lot of criticism, as did Aaron Rodgers. They both received the McCullough Protocol. We talked about it afterwards. It was perfectly fine to use ivermectin in combination with other drugs. And Joe Rogan really schooled Sanjay Gupta and CNN in the Joe Rogan's uh, studio. You know, I was uh, in, down there in the studio uh, a few weeks after that. And I think Sanjay Gupta really learned a lesson to not mess with the community standard of care and don't try to question doctors with medical and clinical authority. Uh, and I think also Big Pharma doesn't like something like ivermectin because it's cheap and, <laughs> and they can't right. push their vaccine. So that's a whole part of this as well. You know, there's so much here. We know we were called conspiracy theories for theorists for two plus years for even speaking out about this. But do you think now I'm seeing publications asking for COVID amnesty? We shouldn't have locked down. We shouldn't have shut down schools. We shouldn't have forced masks. We shouldn't maybe force vaccines. But the government, the White House is still pushing for boosters. When is the day of reckoning going to come that they finally say enough is enough, we messed up? Will that day ever come? I think the day is going to come when the public absolutely positively refuses every last dose. It's going to be 
down to public opinion. The government is so far bought into this vaccine strategy, which has failed globally. It hasn't been sufficiently safe. It's led to record mortalities, hospitalizations, injuries, and didn't work. People who took the vaccines got COVID anyway. You know, there's never been a shot in the arm that's ever stopped any infection in the nose. This never happened before. So this, this whole idea that we could actually give an intramuscular injection and provide immunity in the nasal mucosa was a pipe dream. And it, and it didn't work. Uh, what we have now is uh, a whole series of cover-ups. And we know this, uh, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths within 90 days of their vaccine. People were calling Pfizer as their family members were dying of the COVID-19 vaccines. And the FDA and the lawyer for the FDA wanted to block that document to American public for 55 years. Our FDA is actively trying to cover up a giant safety debacle. And, and thousands of Americans have died, have been unnecessarily hospitalized, and the country is outraged. Oh, as we should be. My last question for you, because you're speaking out about this with force, and you are one of maybe only a handful of others with your credentials that are doing so. Are you ever worried for your life? I know you're not worried for your career. You push on through. Are you ever worried, you know, when you start tangling with big government, big tech, big pharma, do you have any concern about your personal safety? You know, when I co-moderated the January 24th, 2022 Senate session, COVID-19 second opinion, we had chairs in place for all our public health officials, every single one of them, all the ones you see on TV, none of them showed up. None of them had the courage to face me or doctors in my circles. I don't even get a bad email. I don't even get a bad text message. I've never had a chief of medicine ever disagree with me, either publicly or privately, or a chief of infectious disease. I can tell you right now, the silence is deafening among doctors. They know that our government and societies worldwide are down the wrong pathway. The best thing that can happen today is to drop all the mandates, pull the vaccines off the market, have the doctors treat the remaining cases with no restrictions on what drugs they use. And this problem is over with. It's basically over with. The governments are going to have to give up on this. And I think that's really what you've implied in in most of our discussion today. Uh, I, I hope that you're right about that. Uh, a little humility and a piece of humble pie would do a lot of people a lot of good, namely Dr. Fauci and others. Thank you so much for sounding the alarm, for always being so steadfast in your resolve, having the intestinal fortitude to speak out even when it's not easy, though it seems quite easy for you because you have that integrity. And please come back anytime. We hope that we never go through such a dumb time in history ever, ever again. And with voices like yours, we're going to make sure we don't. Thank you so much for being with me, doctor. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, rapper Takeoff from the mega popular rap trio Migos was shot and killed in Houston earlier this week. It's the culture of lawlessness mixed with the culture of celebrating that lawlessness that we need to talk about. And my final thoughts are next. 28-year-old rapper Takeoff, one-third of the popular rap trio Migos, was shot and killed outside a Houston bowling alley early Tuesday morning. The world, and especially the rap community, mourns his death as we all ask why and how this kind of thing continues to happen. Well, I've got some final thoughts. Rapper Takeoff of the rap trio Migos was shot dead in Houston earlier this week. He was only 28 years old. Now, reports say he was attending a private party with about 50 others when he was shot, reportedly in a dispute over a dice game. 
Two other people, a 23-year-old man and a 24-year-old woman, were also injured in the shooting. But police say most of the others at the party fled the scene and didn't even stick around to give a statement or help investigators. Now, this news shook the rap community as fellow artists and fans posted an outpouring of grief, shock, and heartbreak at rap music's latest loss. And what's worse, Takeoff is one of at least eight other rappers shot and killed in 2022 alone. Is it a coincidence? Well, do you see artists and other genres dropping like flies? No, the answer is no. Just weeks ago, rapper PNB Rock was fatally shot at a Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, for God's sake. Wavy Navy Pooh was killed in a drive-by shooting in Miami. T-Dot Woo was shot and killed in front of his house in February. He was only 22. Rapper Snooty Wild also killed in Houston early in 2022. Rapper Trouble, you guessed it, also shot and killed. These lives lost are all horrible tragedies, but is it hard to figure out how we got here, or at least partly how we got here? Rap and hip-hop songs have a common theme. Drugs, gangs, bitches, guns, and you guessed it, murder. Kill, 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 murder, 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 and we the fans eat it up. Wrap it in the club or hell, even in the car going to freaking Target on a Sunday afternoon. And we say it's just music, but is it? And I say this as a fan of rap music. You know, my friend Gianna Caldwell, a fellow Fox News contributor who lost his own teenage brother to senseless violence over the summer, shared this post yesterday, and it's powerful. Words have power. Take the words and the themes and the overarching messages in rap and hip-hop and combine it with the culture of lawlessness we have in our streets today, and you have the perfect storm. And as tragic as Takeoff's death is, let's keep in mind that most of the people who are dying, like the 14 people, including three children, shot on Halloween night in a drive-by shooting on Chicago's west side, they don't get the name recognition. They are just another name, another number to add to the statistics. It's time we clean up our pop culture and our streets because it doesn't have to be this way. Rest in peace, and those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show as well as exclusive content, of course, on Outkick.com. From Nashville, God bless and take care.